This evening we're considering James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, picking up where Pastor Jason began our series last Sunday night. Now, we could have taken the first 18 verses, and really there is uh, quite a movement of the theme throughout there. That could have been one sermon, but we've broken it up into three here to start with. And so it's somewhat um, a judgment call where to begin each sermon. So especially verses 9 through 11 could have just been a part of last week's uh, section as well. As you remember, the letter opens up. James, the brother of Jesus, is writing to most likely Jewish Christians who have had to leave their homes because of persecution. So Jews of the dispersion, the 12 tribes, and so he begins with telling them, you got to think about your trials and the trials that you're experiencing right now, the way that God has purposed these trials for you. In the beginning, in the first eight verses, the purpose of the trials is for their growth in spiritual maturity and wholeness. And we closed last week saying that God then offers wisdom for us to see our trials in light of the purpose he has for our trials. And so we're picking up with that theme of trials, but then it moves from trials to testing to temptation. Before we consider our passage tonight, let us ask for God's help and prayer, and then we will hear God's word read and proclaimed. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. So feed us tonight on the bread of heaven, that we might be encouraged and sustained, that we might view ourselves, that we might view the Christian life, our mission as believers, most importantly, that we might have a clearer view of you as you have revealed yourself in your word, that we might live lives that glorify your son as we grow in your grace. So we ask that you would do that through the preaching of your word this evening. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Hear the word of God from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 to verse 18. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will be the rich man. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Actually, you probably want to keep your Bible open so you can follow along this evening. One of my favorite quotes from a generation ago, A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We could also say, what we think about God when facing trials, testing, and temptation is the most important thing about us. Or maybe to change around a little bit, in the midst of trials, testing, and temptation, quite often we find out what we really think about God and what we really believe about God. So as James is continuing this theme here in the beginning of his letter, he wants to make sure that we have the right perspective on our God in the midst of the difficulties of living in this fallen world. So two points this evening. Verses 9 through 11, I want us to see that Christians need to view themselves as their Heavenly Father does. The second is that Christians need to view their Heavenly Father as He has revealed Himself. And that's in verses 12 through 18. Look back with me at verses 9 through 11. Now, it should have caught you off guard, and it should have maybe got your attention, where James has an imperative. The imperative is boast. That doesn't sound very Christian-like. Normally, when we speak of boasting, that is a negative connotation, is it not? But here, he's telling the low brother, boast in his exaltation. It could be that James, very familiar with the Old Testament, has what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 9, 24. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. There is a good kind of boasting, and this is the boasting that James is commending, but he's commending it to, it says here, the lowly brother. And this is a reference to most likely socioeconomic status. The poor brother. It says, boast in your exaltation. Now we got to think about this. There are some who would say that God has special love for the poor. That there's something spiritually commendable about just being poor. That's a favorite of liberation theology. God has special spiritual status because someone is poor. The Bible is very clear. God is filled with compassion and he does care for the poor and the needy and the helpless. But when it comes to spiritual status, none can come to him apart from faith in his son. There's nothing commendable to God, anyone can say, receive me because of my situation here. 
So we want to be clear on that. It's the believing poor that is told to boast in their exaltation. And that tells us what we need to know about their boasting. He's saying, the earth may look at you as lowly and insignificant, but you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so let the dwindling bank account remind you of your heavenly reward and exalt in that. And others may think lightly of you and lowly of you, but you know who you are in Christ and boast and exalt in that. And on the flip side then, there's the, and the rich and his humiliation. That is what the rich is to boast. And I take this to be that it is the rich brother who is not to find his significance in his social status and what he has done for himself in this world and what he has attained for himself, but that he is to boast that he belongs to King Jesus and to his people. And his humiliation is that he is to remember that he serves a king that while here was despised and rejected and humbled himself to the cross. The boasting for the rich man is not in his account, but that he belongs to Jesus. And the following verses, and it talks about the, how temporal and temporary all his rich belongings belong to him, or like the flower of the grass that fades away. It's going to disappear. It's a reminder to him that he is to humble himself and say, no matter what material things the Lord has blessed me with, that my status is that I belong to Jesus and to his people, and I am dependent on him. All these things can fade away tomorrow, and they are gone. Now, it could be that uh, the main point James is making, uh, he's wanting to talk about disparity between uh, economic situations throughout the letter. So he's, he's doing something where he's introducing a topic. And he was going to later in the letter pick up the poor and the rich. And he wants Christians to think rightly about that. But here, I take it he's, he's dealing with rich brothers and poor brothers in this life. And he's saying the most important thing is that you must not view yourself in terms that the world sees you, but as your heavenly Father sees you. He could have used other comparisons. And so maybe it's helpful for us to think through that. He could have said, to the single or, and to the married, boast in who you are in Christ and that alone. He could have said, to the childless and to those with children, boast in who you are and who you belong to. There's any number of scenarios, the point being, see yourself as God sees yourself. Brothers and sisters of, of Pathway, I want you to think of yourselves the way that God does. That it may feel like a small gathering, but as you gather, you're gathering with your Heavenly Father. You have an audience with the King of the universe. And your neighbors may think of you as lowly, but you are not. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. And you have communion with the triune God. And as you gather in Sunday mornings, heaven opens up and you hear the word of your heavenly Father. 
And so boast in who you are in Christ. And therefore, gladly invite your neighbors and friends and say, come. Come to the most special thing happening on Sunday mornings in Brighton. It's this group of believers singing praises to God. College students, many of your roommates and classmates may mock you and think of you as insignificant and narrow-minded and dim-witted for following Christ. And you need to remind yourself who you are in Christ and who he's called you to be. See yourself in light of that. There's many more ways we could apply it, but let's look on to verses 12 through 18. In the midst of trials, testing, and temptation, Christians need to view their Heavenly Father as He has revealed Himself. So picking up in verse 12, James gives us a beatitude. Blessed is. Now this is what we see Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. We see beatitudes in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. And here James is giving his own beatitude. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now, notice here, the blessing is not relief from the trial. The blessing is in the midst of the trial. The blessing that he is going to hold out, it insinuates that there may be some trials, dear brothers and sisters, that will remain the entirety of our walk on this earth. There may be trials that you and I will carry with us all the way to glory. So the blessedness is not the release from the trial, it's under the trial, and it's what's to come after it. Picking up in the verse, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He wants to remind us that in times of testing, your heavenly Father is good. And He holds out to you in the midst of testing a reward. The crown of life. The crown being the reward, the reward being life. This image is, uh, the crown image in the New Testament is at least four other occasions in the New Testament writings. One in particular that has a lot of correspondence to our passage is in Revelations uh, 2, 9, and 11. It is a wreath, a victor's wreath. Don't think the crown of a monarch or a king of royalty, but this is the wreath that comes at the end of a race, of an Olympic race, that you have finished the race and then the victor's wreath is put on. And so... Very similar to this passage, so if you could hold your place in James, turn over to Revelation chapter 2. This is the letters to the church in Revelation 2, 9 through 11. We can begin in verse 8. And the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. That's exactly what James wants the lowly brothers to know. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. James is reminding, and he said, you're blessed that there's the promised crown. If you're faithful to the end, the Lord has this in store. Then in verse 13, having reminded us of what is promised to the believer for our perseverance, he wants to clarify. He does some, some heart work. He wants us to recognize that God has a purpose in our trial. And God has a reward for persevering in faith. Eternal life purchased by the Son, secured for us. And if we made steadfast unto death, we receive it. But then he's transitioning saying, but this may be going on in your heart. You recognize the trial and the testing that's coming, and then there's temptation that arises on it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He wants you to see the trial as an opportunity to grow in spiritual maturity, to have your faith proven and tested. But also he wants you to recognize that the trial very easily can become a situation in which we are vulnerable to temptation and what is an opportunity to take two steps forward in spiritual growth also becomes an obstacle, a stumbling block, and a snag. And it could set us back. And so he says, first of all, God may send testing, but he doesn't send tempting. God tested Abraham in Genesis 22. He's tested his people and when they took the promised land, we see in the book of Judges, that he allowed pagan neighbors to see if they would choose the idolatry of their neighbors or they'd go with God. We see with King Hezekiah that he was tested when the Syrians come and he shows them the wealth and his treasures. We see even in the Apostle Peter, God's purposeful testing in preparing his man for the calling and purpose that he had for him as an apostle. But God does not tempt. What is the difference? Well, God intends testing for the strengthening and proving of his people. Tempting is enticing to what is evil. And God does not do that because he himself cannot be tempted. He himself, there's nothing that he could be pulled away from who he is. He's not like a a crooked politician that has his price. That he can name, this is how much I could be swayed for. That is not God. He wants his people to know that. And then James slows down and he wants us to think about the pattern of temptation here in verses 14 to 15. 
It's almost as if he gives us a frame-by-frame look to see, understand that in the midst of what you're facing and the challenges, when temptation arises, this is how it comes into our lives. It's like instant replay. And all the sports fans, you know what instant replay is or the replay review like in a football game to where that a play happens and it's bang, bang, and then all of a sudden, did he go out of bounds? Did he score? Did he catch it? Did he fumble? And then what happens? The referee goes to the side and he puts his head in a little booth and he looks frame by frame to try to determine, did he have both feet in bounds? Did he catch the ball? No one knows the true definition of a catch, but they try to figure out, they look at the instant replay, did he catch the ball? Well, this is something of what James is doing for us with temptation, showing us the pattern. It's something to consider that often it's a casual thought that becomes a minor temptation that grows into a major transgression. It's been said. See here, the pattern, frame by frame, it begins with deception. It says that each person is tempted when he is Lord. Now, that's a, that, that is a fishing metaphor, that there is bait on a hook. That is something said, this is something that you would want, and inside of it, there is the hook. They are Lord. But it's not just that they're deceived, it's that there's, there is a corresponding attraction, a sinful desire that is stirred from our sinful nature. And there we are enticed. Now, enticed is, is not a fishing metaphor. It's more of a hunting metaphor. Picture taking some sort of bait and putting it over a trap to entice a wild animal that you're seeking to catch and to cook and to eat. It's a hunting metaphor. But then from there, it goes from being willingly deceived and attracted and drawn into a preoccupation and then the metaphor changes to a birth cycle where the desire becomes a temptation and it is conceived and then it's a birth cycle, but it's actually, in these verses, a death cycle. That once it becomes a preoccupation of our heart, it brings us into subjection to sin. It's important that James wants us to understand that this temptation does not come from God. And in this particular passage, he wants believers to know that you are responsible for how you deal with temptation. Later in the, in the book of James, he will talk about our adversary, the deceiver, the liar, the tempter, Satan, and that we are to resist him. But right now, for our sanctification, he wants you to understand that it is your sinful desires that lure and entice. He wants us to take responsibility for the sin. Here, we have something of a dilemma, don't we? In verse 12, the promise of the crown of life, and then James tells us, but this is how sin and temptation works and how it brings about death. Well, how is the dilemma solved within the passage? It is looking to the Heavenly Father who provides what His people needs. 
in the midst of their testing. And so that's where he picks up. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's setting the stage. He's saying that, dear saint, everything you need to remain steadfast, to persevere, to keep clinging to Christ, everything you need, your heavenly Father will provide. Your heavenly Father will give. And so it reminds us that he is the father of creation, the father of lights. This is the only place in the Bible that God is called the father of lights. And it gives a great picture to describe what God is like. What is your heavenly father like? He is all light unmixed from darkness. That he is the source of all goodness. And so you could take it to where he says, look at how does life sustained in this world? Well, we got to have the sun. And we got to have the seasons for the crops and the harvest. And that life is tied to the sun. Well, your Heavenly Father is the one who created the sun. And that's just a, a glimpse of His goodness. And so the greatness and the goodness that comes and the abundance and the generosity and the bounty that comes from the sun, this is... This is what your heavenly father's like. Except he's not like the heavenly celestial, the, the sky, in that there are patterns and variations and changing. And that some night you see a full moon, and sometimes you see a half moon, sometimes you see a quarter moon. And in some times of the year, it's daylight to 11 o'clock at night and then some days out of the year it's just gray all day your heavenly father is not like that see earthly fathers we vacillate we have good days and bad days our kids can tell our family can tell when we're having good days and bad days but your heavenly father is always the same disposition towards his children Reliable, immutable, unchanging, always gracious, always compassionate, always wise, always good, always just, always powerful, always righteous. He doesn't even choose to have a day when he's more merciful and more justice. It's all the same all the time, and it's glorious. And so this Father gives us everything that we need in the midst of dealing with and fighting temptation in order that we might remain steadfast. He gives His, his Holy Spirit. He gives the body. This section ends with James highlighting one of the preeminent gifts of our Heavenly Father. Did you catch it in verse 18? Look back there with me. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. 
The preeminent gift of the Heavenly Father here is the new birth, regeneration, being born again. You say, well, the, the ultimate gift of the Father is the Son. Yes, but this has come in tandem because without the new birth, we don't receive the Son. And we are blind to the glory and the light of God that is revealed to us in Jesus apart from being given eyes to see and ears to hear. And so this Heavenly Father, in the midst of trials and terrible times, you can look to Him and remember that He is the one that by His own will, He's not just the Father of creation, He is the Father of redemption. And that He has brought a people to His Son by giving them new life that they might believe on the Son. And how does He do so? By the word of truth. That as the gospel goes out, the Spirit of God brings men, women, boys and girls from darkness to light, from death to life, in order that they might believe in the Son. This is our Heavenly Father, and we are never to forget it. And think about how the new birth answers the dilemma of the pattern of temptation that we all know so, so well. Jeremiah 31 says new birth means that the law of God is written on our hearts. In Ezekiel 36, we've been given hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. In 2 Corinthians 5, we are part of the new creation. We are new creatures John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that the Spirit blows where He wishes. It's the work of the Spirit of God Himself. Last summer, um, for the second time, we had a squirrel get into our basement. Um, I think I figured out why and patched up the hole. Um, I tried to, this past summer, borrow a squirrel trap from someone, and I tried to entice the squirrel into the basement. Um, and so I took some peanut butter and some nuts, and I made a trail into the trap to try to entice the squirrel, because um, I knew if that wasn't going to work, I was going to have to get it with my bare hands. Um, it didn't work. And then it was just me and the squirrel in the basement. And I said, one of us are going to meet our maker. It's either going to be me or you. God's providence, it was him. But he didn't take the temptation. Somehow he resisted. That's the part of the good news of the new birth. Is that before when this pattern that always produced death, always produced death, but now that we are children of the Heavenly Father, born again, we don't have to live in that pattern. And we can look to our Heavenly Father to give us all that we need. See, our place in the family of God is more than our legal adoption. It is the very, God has given us a new nature. And so as we fight the remnants of corruption that finds correspondence in the desire for sin, 
we are to remember that we belong to the Father of light and we do not have to walk down the path of darkness again. And even if we get no relief from the trial we're facing, we do not have to succumb to temptation. And when we do, we know we have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And so our Heavenly Father's disposition to us never changes. He says, get up, let's go. Get up, let's go. I have a crown of life for you. Get up, let's go. Amen. Let's ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our Heavenly Father, we need this sort of help. We thank you that you are immutable, you're impassable. That means that you are dependable and reliable. That everything that you ask of us, you supply. That salvation is all from you. And so today we boast. We boast in the cross. We boast in the power of the resurrection that we have come to receive and to know. As your people, may we be committed to the message and good news that God raises the spiritually dead to new life and brings them into his kingdom. May we go forth with gratitude and sharing this good news with the gift of another week to do your service and to fellowship with you and your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.